Good morning. It is a delight and a privilege to be able to be here with you all this morning to worship the risen Christ on this Lord's Day morning, to spend time opening up God's Word and considering it together. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, you can see there in your bulletin, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we get to chapter 2, I'm going to take a few minutes to get a running start uh, to catch up. I suppose one of the negatives to preaching consistent exposition, uh, when you are invited somewhere to do a one-off like this, um, it, it just feels a little awkward. So I'm going to uh, do the difficult work of beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, momentarily. This book as a whole, the letter that Peter has written, is a constant combination of glorious doctrine with the most useful practical exhortations. It's a wonderful balance of this is the truth about who God is and what he's done for his people. And this is what your life ought to look like as a result of who he is and what he's done in and through your lives. The letter serves as a great example for us, for each of us, for the need for both teaching with regard to the truth and exhortation towards righteousness. We must know the doctrines of the Christian faith. We must be aware of the teachings of Christianity. And at the same time, we must be urged on in duty and holiness. One without the other creates a terrible imbalance. What Peter has provided for us here in 1 Peter is a wonderful balance. Beginning with what God has done for us in chapter 1, God has chosen you according to his foreknowledge. God has sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus Christ. God is sanctifying you by his Holy Spirit. God has shown mercy to you. He has caused you to be born again. He has given you a living living hope. God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God has promised an indestructible inheritance for you. God is keeping your inheritance and keeping it so well that it will never perish, soil, or fade. Not only is God keeping your inheritance, he's protecting you now by his power in order to guarantee your eventual obtaining of that inheritance that he's keeping for you. And God has gifted you with faith to believe him and to love him even though now you cannot see him. And God has given you joy, even, or we may say especially, in the midst of trials and difficult circumstances, so that your faith may prove to be genuine in the final day. And then from there, from basking in the wonderful realities of the gospel, Peter proceeds, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, to point out those things that God expects from us as his people. Beginning with this, be hopeful. Peter instructs us in untangling our hearts from the world in which we live. And he instructs us in turning our lives toward God as our only lasting comfort and rest. So he says, be hopeful. And then he continues, be holy. Verse 15, 
your progress in living holy is directly related to your understanding and application of the biblical description of the holy God. Be holy because He is holy. So be hopeful, be holy, be fearful. Verse 17 of chapter 1. No, this fear is not a dread of God as a hard master or even a vindictive judge, but a holy, reverential fear of offending Him. Be fearful. Have a tender concern, a tender regard to please God in everything. It's a fear that's born in reverence and maintained in a spirit of adoration. It's not a slavish fear at all. Be hopeful, be holy, be fearful. Be loving one another. Verse 22 of chapter 1. A clear mark of sanctification in our lives, a clear mark of holiness in our lives is evidenced in our love one for another. Now if you pick up with me in chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 8 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, Peter writes, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense." For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So, though it's a new chapter on the pages of our Bible, the theme has not changed for Peter continuing to flow out of the great realities of the gospel and what God has done in us and for us is, are the expectations that, of the work that he is doing through us. So, Be hopeful and be holy and be fearful and be loving one another. And Peter continues here, be longing for the word like newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the word and be coming to Christ. Verse 4 of chapter 2, come to him as a living stone. Come to him as one who is precious and choice in the sight of God. Like starving newborns crave the pure milk of the word because it's this word of God that reveals Christ to us. It is how we know him. The psalmist said it this way, taste for yourself and see that he is good. Come to him who is all love to every one of his children. Long for him in his word. Come to him. We may ask the question, why? Why come to him? This one who is being rejected by almost everyone around us. This one whose rule is despised by the vast majority of our day. Why come to him? His glory appears minimal at best. 
as we gaze around the world in which we live, why come to him? Because he's God's chosen one. Because he's choice and precious in the sight of God. Choice and select and precious. Yet man, vile man, who's made in the image of God, finds him of no value. God, the creator of all things, the purest of all beings, the greatest of all persons, finds his value choice and precious. And so he says to us here through his human author, Peter, long for the pure milk of the word. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, come to him. He's a stone that is living. He is choice and precious. So much so that he is the foundation of the temple of God. He's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. He's the base for all our belief in God as Savior. It's as if Peter is saying, come to him because from the cornerstone to the capstone, this Christ is everything. He is wonderfully sufficient for you. He is the rock-solid foundation of our faith. And he's living. He doesn't merely provide the structure in a static fashion that's required for our dependence on him as our all in all, but there's a life that is proceeding from him, that is exuding out of him, and it affects every other stone in the building, namely us. Verse 5, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is building his church, and he's doing so with individuals like you and like me. And Christ is the cornerstone, and he's a living stone. And his life gives us life. We have life because of who he is and what he's done for us. This precious value, verse 7, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Disbelief is rejection of Christ. It's disobedience to his word. In the same way that what we know to be true about God affects how we live our lives, when we don't know him, It results in disobedience. Disbelief results in disobedience. Let's continue reading there the verses that we want to give our attention to this morning, beginning in verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. In the day of visitation. There in your bulletin you see the title this morning is called to keep. Called by God to be his dearly loved children. 
And as a result of that calling, the expectation is to keep our behavior acceptable in his sight in order that the world in which we live might be eternally affected. Called to keep. First, the calling, but you. But you are a chosen race. In contrast to the disobedient who are doomed to destruction, you are not. The negative reality that precedes this adds to our appreciation of what Peter is saying here. If you're disobedient, you are doomed. But it doesn't apply to you if you're in Christ. This is what Peter says to you. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I have three points if you're interested in where we're headed, if it helps you. The first one is be proclaiming. So continuing with from be hopeful and be holy and be fearful and be loving one another and be longing for, for the word and be coming to Christ. Be proclaiming from verses 9 and 10. And then secondly, be abstaining from verse 11. And thirdly, be behaving from verse 12. Be proclaiming, be abstaining, and be behaving. First, be proclaiming. God has called us to himself. He has given us a significant status as his children, and he has provided for us a magnificent ministry of proclaiming the excellencies of him. We were once not a people, and now we are God's people, possessed by him. The authorized version, the King James, says, says it very well in this verse. Chosen, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's what God has made his own. As Peter writes here, he's writing out of the context, quoting from Exodus 19 of that great rescue of the people of God being saved as a result of the plagues and in the miraculous parting of the Red Sea and the ongoing provision of water and manna and meat. Listen from Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be a holy nation. Your moral status before me will be one of holiness, set apart. And with that comes moral obligations to God, expectations to do what he commands in his word. You are a holy nation. As Christians, we have the privilege of having dual citizenship, being a part of the holy nation of God in God's family, but also living in a country where our physical residence is. Now, there are times that this may place us in difficult situations where we must decide whether we will bow to God or country. In our day, these issues rise up in areas of morality like abortion or war or faith in the public square. These issues force us to be separate from the world in a very tangible way. 
oftentimes even from the so-called conservative evangelical world among us. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter is emphasizing the access with this royal priesthood, highlighting the access that God's people have, highlighting the access that we have. Royal priesthood. We have priestly access. There's no closer access to be had. It is close fellowship. It is the most glorious title for the people of God. The pedigree of God's people is royal and priestly. And Peter uses these Old Testament realities to encourage the original recipients of this letter and us this morning. These Old Testament examples serve as wonderful incentives and encouragements for us. Let's consider just a few of the familiar lineage that Peter is referencing. Think about Abraham of old, an idolater. Abraham and his whole family, wicked idolaters when God called them by his remarkable grace. Abraham did not have any more claim to the blessings that were promised to him by God than any other person in the world at that time. And yet God chose him. Or Isaac instead of Ishmael, was appointed to be the channel of the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And this appointment by God took place before Isaac was even born into the world. Or Jacob, also the younger brother of Esau, chosen instead of Esau, even while he was still in the womb, long before either of them had done done any good or any evil. So why? Why were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob chosen? Are you willing to argue that it was for their superior goodness or their superb qualities? It couldn't have been for anything that God saw in them. They they were unborn at the time of the promised blessing. It couldn't have been for anything foreseen. Even in their lives, they proved to be rebellious and stiff-necked as a people as a whole. From the very beginning. So they weren't chosen... Because of anything seen or foreseen, we, we, can, we cannot trace God's people being selected by God to receive blessings to anything in any of them, but only to God and His inexplicable love. And the God that freely loved them is a God who can never and will never change. He has continued in every age, age after age, to freely love his people with an everlasting love. He continues to redeem people according to his matchless grace. This truth is what Peter is using to encourage us. He's saying, look at this God. Consider his prior dealings with his people. Be amazed at his love. Consider his grace. Look at the mercy that he's shown. He didn't set, the Lord didn't set his love on them because they were more in number than any of the peoples. This is what Deuteronomy 7 tells us. He says directly to them, you are the fewest of all peoples. 
But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The Jews, as the people of God, were a special people. And they received immense blessings as a result of being God's special people. They were rescued from an incredibly oppressive bondage. They were instructed and guided by the voice of revelation, by God himself. They were sustained by bread from heaven, water from a rock, even quail. They were brought into a very near relation to God himself. They were honored with access to God based on his divine terms. They were distinguished above all other peoples on the earth. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter takes these great truths that apply to the Old Testament people of God, and he applies them to New Testament believers. He applies them to you and to me. Notice verse 9, you who are chosen, royal, holy, belonging to God as a peculiar people, We aren't rescued like the Jews were from an incredibly oppressive bondage, but God in his grace has rescued his children from the tyranny of sin and the snare of Satan. We're no longer instructed and guided by the voice of revelation, but we are instructed and guided by the word of God through the spirit of God. We're no longer as God's people sustained by bread from heaven and water from a rock or quail when we complain, but we are sustained by daily measures of his grace. We aren't just brought into a near relation with God in the midst of a tabernacle or a temple, but we're brought into his family. We've become sons and daughters, and we aren't just honored with access based on his divine terms through appointed people, but we're given the most intimate communion with him, being united to Christ by faith. And we aren't merely distinguished above all the other peoples or nations on the earth, But we have been privileged with proclaiming his glorious excellencies to our neighbors and to the nations. You, Peter says, and you, and you, and you, and you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's clear from the passage in Deuteronomy 7 that I read that the Jews owed everything they received to the distinguishing grace of God. Not because they were great in number, they were the fewest. Not because of their goodness, they were the most stiff-necked. Yet he loved them. He loved them. Why did he love them? What Deuteronomy 7 tells us, because he loved them. And in time, he displayed that love for them and for all of mankind. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the altogether lovely one, died for the unlovely, for the ungodly, for us. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, into his family, into his presence into his glory forever and ever. We cannot trace the loving choice 
of God for his children to any other source except God alone. The gospel coming to us, to you, to me, was not in relation to any good in us. Not good that we had done in our past, not good that we were doing in, our, in the present, not even good that we would eventually do in the future. Regarding your past, no one in here is willing to stand and say that you have not been inconceivably vile and wicked and sinful before God. The gospel coming to us was not in relation to any good in our present when the gospel came. Who among us was not in the very midst of our sinful career when God plucked us like a brand from the burning? The gospel coming to us is not even in relation to any good that will eventually come. What good will any of us ever have that will not be directly related to the work of God through Christ in us? There will be good evident in God's people. He has, in fact, chosen us in Christ that we might be holy. But not because we were holy or because he foresaw that we would become holy, He chose us because he loved us, and loving us, he saves us, and saving us begins the process of conforming us into the image of his son. He loves us. There's no other reason we can contrive for his making us his own, him making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Other than this, he loves us. At the foundation of his covenant with us is his love for us. Now, there are times when this reality is questioned because it's misunderstood. But there are also times when this reality is hated because it is understood. May God give us the grace to allow Him to be God. And as a result, we stand back amazed that He chose to love any of us. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. This peculiarity of being God's own possession produces proclamation. Look at the middle of verse 9. So that you are chosen, royal, holy, and possessed by God, so that. Here's the outflow of what God has done in you. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We not only receive a significant status in Christ as a peculiar people, but we receive a marvelous ministry. The privilege of proclaiming his excellencies. So who we are, our identity is in Christ, is affected. And what we do is affected. Who we are affects what we do because we're in Christ. We proclaim his excellencies. We enjoy his special presence among us. We enjoy his special favor towards us. And when we praise him for what he's done, we are in a very real way joining heaven's throng around the throne where the Lamb of God sits, receiving all honor and glory. But our praise is also being heard by our neighbors and among the nations. Our praise of Christ bears witness to the world of his greatness and his glory. That's what Peter is saying here. You have 
been chosen. You've been given a royal stamp of God's approval. You've been made holy and set apart. You, You are owned by God now. You belong to him. And here's the reason that you may proclaim his excellencies. This one who called you out of darkness. Darkness is our natural habitat. We we are born in spiritual darkness with an aversion to the things of God. But he rescued us from this domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John goes on to record there in chapter 3, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Darkness is our natural habitat. But God's called his own out of that darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love, the kingdom of light, Israel was called out of the darkness of slavery and bondage and plagues. Christ was called out of the darkness of death and the tomb. And we have been called out of the darkness of sin. Not out of Babylon to Jerusalem, but out of being hell-bound and into Christ. Charles Wesley said it so wonderfully well in the famous hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once, look at verse 10, Peter continues, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God chose Israel to be his people, and Israel, we know from history, chose other gods. In Hosea 1, God says, I'll no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. Then when Gomer had weaned her second son, she conceived and gave birth to a third son. And the Lord said, name him Loami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. But as Hosea continues to prophesy in verse 10 of chapter 1, yet the number of the sons of Israel, he says, will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And here's Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 saying, here's the reality. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Peter is reminding us of our prior misery. You were once not a people. You once had not received mercy. You once were not a have-not. And you can be a have. We we split up have and have-nots differently in our culture. God splits them up this way. You have not received mercy or you have received mercy. May it be a reality this morning that when we leave this place, we're in the camp of those who have received mercy. If you have not received mercy, you have the 
privilege this morning of being transferred from having not received mercy to receiving mercy from the Most High God and being adopted into his family. The psalmist said it this way, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You're a chosen race so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not a people, now you're a people. You hadn't received mercy, now you've received mercy. But Peter doesn't stop there. How then should we live in light of these glorious truths of what God has done in us? Verse 11, point number two, be abstaining. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There's a war going in our, a war going on within our souls. And Peter begins by saying, beloved. Literally, friends whom I love. He cared about these folks. He had been pastoring them and shepherding them. And so he says, he's he's about to make a, a difficult statement. I urge you. Abstain from fleshly lusts. And so he begins it with saying, friends whom I love, because he knows that what stems from love is more likely to be received and accepted. I think of it as the Mary Poppins method. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Peter's about to make a hard statement, and so he begins with, friends whom I love. That we do that when, when we have to have a difficult conversation with someone. We begin with, you, you understand that I love you. And, and oftentimes we sandwich Oftentimes we will sandwich the back end of the statement again with, remember, I I love you and I care about you. That's what Peter is doing here. here, Here's the advice of a friend who genuinely loves you and aims at nothing other than, than your good. It's because I love you, Peter says, that I urge you. He offers urgent application based on his apostolic affection. The way that the Apostle Paul said it to the church at Rome, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Or to the church at Ephesus, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Beloved, Peter says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust. I urge you as aliens and strangers. A wonderful reminder that they in their world and us in ours, we are temporary residents of this place. Be careful not to plant roots too deep. Avoid adopting sinful and empty customs of this world. Now, we should appreciate and value the land in which we live, especially this land in which we live. Yet we should not lose, we must work hard to not lose our distinct Christian identity in it. It's not at all the main point of this text, but it's worth us considering whether or not we are aliens and strangers in this world. How distinct is your stranger status? Peter assumes that they are aliens and strangers in the world in which they live. The same would be assumed of us as children of God. I urge you, he says, to abstain from fleshly lust. That is from sinful desires, from corrupt affections, from evil deception, 
from prideful boasting, from foolishness, from disobedience, from slavery to sinful pleasures, from bitterness, from rage, from anger, from slander, from malice, from empty ambitions. Don't just abstain because these are mere stumbling blocks making the pathway more difficult. Don't just abstain because these are merely rival interests clamoring for attention. Peter says abstain because they are waging war against your soul. Sin within us is soldier-like and it seeks to destroy. Galatians 5, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That makes it clear that what Peter's saying is true. These things are waging a war for our soul. So we must abstain from them. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8.13 So we must abstain from them, suffocate them. We, We cut off the lifeline. The blood flow to those sins. The sinful acts in our lives have a supply source with a lifeline that must be severed. It's the condition of our heart, naturally, that produces the sinful deeds of our bodies. So, yes, what Jesus says is true. We must cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. But not literally, because it would do no good. But we must fight sin This violently of gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands, that violently at the heart level. Not merely plucking off the bad fruit in our life. A bad tree only produces bad fruit. So we take the axe all the way to the root and shredding it away from the corrupt source. When we search our own hearts, we see this continual proneness to self-seeking and self-pleasing and self-dependence, almost unceasingly making self an idol. So we must watch against it, laboring to bring it into subjection. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust, Peter says, and included in the idea of abstaining is one of distancing yourself. Instead of gratifying that propensity that is in all of us, we must maintain a warfare against it, strongly resisting it, fighting it until it is subdued. We walk according to the natural flesh without any difficulty. It it comes naturally to us, like a ball rolling down the hill. That's what living according to the flesh is like. But to abstain from sin-filled desires and to put to death the evil deeds of our flesh, it's impossible with man. But God hasn't left us to ourselves. We see that in the flow of the passage here. God has changed us. He's, He's made us new. We must abstain from fleshly lust. We must, think of it this way, retaliate in the war for our soul. 
The fleshly lusts are within. The sin within is waging war against our soul. And Peter says, don't settle for being on the defensive, just taking the shots and grinning and bear it. But be on the offensive. Do what it takes to realize the honor of your state as a Christian. Believe what God says here, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And when this becomes a reality, that we're children of the Most High God, and we realize the content state of Christ being all our sufficiency, the need for the fleeting pleasures of sin decreases and decreases. In Proverbs 4.23, the writer there, as we observe that text, shows that the reality of our heart flows out of our lives. He writes, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead of you. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. So it's watch over your heart because out of your heart flows speech and thoughts and gaze and eyes and hands and feet. We must deal with sin at the source. Abstain from fleshly lust. Those are within. We must deal with it at the fountainhead. And then the rivers, the streams, even the tiny little tributaries of our lives will be affected, purified. You can hang fruit on thorn bushes, but you can't make it grow there. As God's people, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, should be coming forth from our lives. Not as outward decor, but by means of inward purity. Exhortations to live in obedience to God are plentiful in the New Testament. And they're always grounded in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. As a result of that, when we balk at or bemoan the commands of Christ, we are denying his work in us. The power of sin being weakened within us produces a Christ-likeness without. So there's a war within. Be abstaining from fleshly lust. But there's also a witness without. Point number three, be behaving. Look at verse 12 with me. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The witness without. It is true that as Christians, we do all that we do before God. We live our lives before him. But it is also true that we are living our lives before a watching world. Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, Jesus goes on to say, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
who is in heaven, which is similar to what Peter is saying here. Keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing in which the world slanders you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your conduct and your life and your daily patterns excellent among the Gentiles. Live like this, literally, so that those who observe your life, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing or speak evil against you, they will eventually be overwhelmed with the goodness and beauty that exudes from your life, actions and deeds. Keep it excellent. Keep your life beautiful and attractive. Then, as they long to know what has produced that beauty and attraction, they long to know this God, they end up transformed by Him, transformed by Him, in the end converted, offering praise and glory to Jesus Christ when He returns. But can we really fathom that being a reality? Can we imagine that our lives, that seem so inconsequential, that outwardly the choices that we make and the deeds that we do would be so distinct from those around us, so like Jesus Christ, so contrary to the culture in which we live, not just different, but like Jesus. Can you fathom that, that it would cause some to speak evil about us? Well, some of you can say, yes, we've experienced that. But can you imagine the next step becoming a reality that through God-given consistency, that slander would be turned to admiration and admiration would lead to seeking and seeking would lead to finding. Finding God. Discovering that He changes hearts and regenerates lives. At a glance, it seems remarkable. So pay close attention to all that you do, right? No, absolutely not. That's not what Peter's saying. He's been careful up until this point. Yes, what everyone sees is outward. It's our behavior, your deeds, your life that is on display before them. But Peter admonishes us here. Keep your behavior excellent by abstaining from sinful desires. We maintain an excellent outward life by giving attention to the sin that is in us. We must deal with every sin and all temptations at the heart, the source of all evil and sin and wickedness. It's a wonderful evangelism strategy. Kill sin within. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Make war for the protection of your soul. And as that sometimes stale, often stagnant, contaminated pond is purified and sanctified bit by bit, one dark corner of our heart being consecrated at a time, then the overflow of what's within produces righteous deeds and out of pure motives and God-honoring actions. And this will be used by God to build his kingdom. Commanded by God here in 1 Peter 2. Patented by Peter as he records these words. Approved by the Holy Spirit as it has happened to many of us already and guaranteed by Christ to work. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now we should note that Peter is not advising us at all here in this passage nor elsewhere. Will we find it in the scriptures? Us being advised to withdraw from the culture or to rebel against the world around us. But rather he is admonishing to live excellently in the midst of of the context that we've been called to live. 
And we're back at where we started with this constant combination that Peter offers of glorious doctrine on the one hand and the most useful practical applications and exhortations on the other. May God help us to be increasingly enamored with this Christ who is choice and precious in the sight of God, seeing His beauty and being changed into His likeness as we gaze at Him on the pages of His Word. May He help us to be attentive and careful in dealing with sin within so that it produces righteousness in order that a watching world both hears our proclamations of truth and sees the deeds in which we do, in order that conviction might come to them, in order that conversion might result. We are called by God to keep ourselves excellent, called His children to keep His commandments. May He help us to keep our lives conforming to the image of Christ so that others too might see that great reality and join with us in that great day. If you're here this morning and still on the outside of Christ and his family, come to him. Come to Christ and find forgiveness for your sin. It is full and free because of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, for the truth it contains. And God, we pray that you would, by your spirit now, take and apply the truths as they are in Jesus to our souls, that we might be affected for eternity's sake. God, we do pray that you would save the lost among us, that you would remove hearts of stone and grant hearts of flesh, and that you would continue the work of sanctification among your children. God, make us all more like your son. He is precious. Make him all the more precious to us as you make us like him. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.